Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And I continue to be blown away by the quality of guests that decide that choose to come on the Intentional Encourager podcast and share their amazing stories with us. And today is no exception. I have Wendy Peace. She is a translation expert. I'm hoping that she can help me translate from hillbilly where I live in West Virginia and speak <laughs> to, to regular English, maybe redneck or something like that. But Wendy, Wendy does is a translation. We're going to find out what a translation expert really is, but you can find Wendy on LinkedIn, but you can find her right now on the intentional encourager podcast. Wendy, how are you today? I'm doing really, really well. You know, I can speak redneck, but I'm not sure I can speak hillbilly. <laughs> you know, I think, if you, I think if you put your mind to it and you really tried hard enough, anything is possible. I think you could do just fine speaking. Well, speaking what I've found. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. Well, what I was going to say, what I found, if I can't understand, we certainly can find an expert who can speak it. <laughs> well, and let's start here. I, I love what you just said there, because a lot of people in language and discussion tend not to find common ground, which is where translation really lies, mm -hmm. is in common ground. Because even if you're not fluent in a language. You use words that you, you are comfortable with in that language. So if you knew Spanish, if you were moderately fluent in Spanish, and you're trying to have a conversation with someone, you would find those words that you spoke better than others, or those sentences or phrases that you spoke better than others to try to build that conversation. In the midst of COVID-19, as we're recording this in the midst of COVID-19, where is that common ground that most people can find themselves working in to build? Because you, you, you have rapport trends, and I love building rapport. So let's start there. Where is that common ground for most people in these conversations around and in the midst of COVID-19? I think the common ground is what people want out of life. It's really interesting. When I talk to people who have done global business, they all come to the point of saying that people are the same everywhere. They want to have safety for their family. They want to have, you know, be able to provide a, 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 an income for them. They want to be able to support their family. They want to spend time with friends. They want to feel like they've done something productive with their life. And, you know, they, they, they really want to connect with people where we're, you know, we're not a solitary type being. So I think right now, what we're connecting across is safety, safety for the world, safety for our family, trying to keep each other healthy. You know, how we go about doing that varies, as we obviously see in the United States. But I think everybody wants to survive this and get through it. And it's funny you mentioned that, Wendy, because again, um, doing a little research on, on your LinkedIn bio before we got started, you really talk about translation and interpretation because I can be okay in the midst of COVID-19, but somebody else might not be okay. It's how we translate not only the words, but the situations around it. How important is it for everyone in these times to find their own translation around how they're performing or navigating inside of this situation we're in with the pandemic? 
Um, I, I, to help other people, I don't know what I can talk about for there, but I think everybody has to find their own way. And what I've done is really started a gratitude journal. Um, I yeah. started it um, November before we knew about COVID and the effects of it. And, and every morning I either try to wake up before I get out of bed and I think about what I'm thankful for. And I try not to make it the same thing all the time, but really look for those sp small special moments that e either gave me a chuckle or made me feel loved or inspired me or surprised me. Um, and so starting my day out like that, rather than thinking about all the things I wanted to get done, just changed the way I looked at the at, you know, my world and my day. I had a much better day. So when COVID came around, surprisingly, I handled it much, surprisingly to me, I handled it much better than I thought I would because I kept focusing on, on that gratitude. Now come August, I don't know what happened. I just got sloppy with my practice and was having a rougher time. And all of a sudden when I realized that I wasn't doing my gratitude journal or I wasn't starting my day off with the gratitude, I thought, ooh, I gotta get back to that. And immediately it switched my outlook on life. So well, you, you, I, I think you translate it, you know, because again, I, I look at that and here's where I want to go with this. And I, and maybe I didn't ask that question correctly, but if we look at a word, like, uh -huh. like let, let's take the word intentional, which is the intentional encourager podcast. Mm -hmm. Someone might interpret what intention means to them differently than you and I might interpret that word because intention to us so so to take your example and i love that you were intentional about your gratitude journal like i am going to do this because i want to get the benefits i want to really tap into how i'm feeling each and every day some people on the other hand might be intentional about taking care of their bodies they're more worried about oh i want to get in better physical shape some people might say, oh, I want to spend an hour or two on LinkedIn because I want to intentionally develop my career part of things. And so right. every, everybody translates things differently. Where I want to go here with you for a minute is because I, I love what you're about. In, in, and I love hearing about how people approach things differently. Now I want to, want to ask you this, in regards to translating how that goes to success, mm -hmm. how do you, how does a person go about translating what success looks like to them? Because you and I can have different modicums of success. You, for you, I love the gratitude journal because to you, I, I, I sense that when you talked about it, that was successful for you from November to August in really honing in on what you wanted to do. For me, it's been this podcast, the Intentional Encourager podcast. So how do people translate different things in their lives to make sure it's lining up with what their true values are and, and where they need to be internally? Okay, so let me try to, I, I think I'm getting your question, but let me try to take it from this way is, um, there are lots of different meanings to words and intentional is a really good word because you gave a lot of examples for that. One of the ones I was just looking around here on my desk. I can't find it without, you know, taking a moment to, to really focus on it. But one of the examples that um, I that I just uh, wrote something on is the word immaculate. Because there are two very, very different meanings for that word. Oh, exactly. Immaculate. Yeah. Yeah, so you can talk about immaculate conception, mm -hmm. which has one meaning, and you can talk about immaculate, like clean and tidy. So if I say my son's room is immaculate, you know, we could both laugh. But <laughs> yeah, okay. I have, so a, now... I have a young adult son. I understand <laughs> what that means, Wendy. <laughs> yes, letting them go, letting them be intentional about how, how immaculate they want the room. Yes. Okay, so when we're translating words, into another language, we have to make sure that we're getting the message and the context accurate. So if you take the word immaculate and you put it into Google Translate and put it in different languages, you can get um, everything from pure to um, 
there were other words like pure. And so I think they're going for the meaning of immaculate conception. Mm -hmm. There were some languages that would do it in, you know, that it was the, the clean message. And so machine translation can't get the intention behind the words that you're trying to get. So we've always for, you know, we've been around for over 30 years. I've been our, uh, the president owner for 16 years. Um, we've always focused on high quality intention because our vision is really clear communications for a peaceful and prosperous world. Because if that intention and that meeting gets through accurately, then people can can connect and they can make, um, you, you know, there is more peace and more understanding and more getting along. I, and so to yeah, do I love, that. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. To, to do that, you really need a professional translator who is a human, who is going to read the passage, understand what it means, and be able to accurately put that into their native language to make sure the message is appropriate. I love that because, and, and I'm thinking about an example that, that people were, so I remember reading a marketing example where Ford was trying to introduce the Pinto mm -hmm. into the Mexican market. Yes. And the word Pinto in Spanish means no go. No, 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 no. That's a different one. That's Nova. I, Nova. I'm sorry. Nova. Yes, yes, yes. I yeah. was thinking Pinto of the, is a different story. Yes, yes. <laughs> but, but to my point, well, sometimes in a podcast, you just try to wing it off the cuff and it just, it doesn't go where it needs to go. But, but the uh, point No, it's is, going right where you want to go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But, but what I'm, what I'm saying is to your point about the translation is somebody at Chevrolet who make the, made the Nova should have understood that in that language that didn't translate, especially to a vehicle. They should have had the foresight to go, okay, Spanish, if we're selling in Mexico, Nova means no go. They're not going to buy a car that doesn't run. <laughs> run. Yes. Now, everybody outside the industry wouldn't know this, but that's actually a, um, a myth. It, that didn't actually happen because Nova is two words. Nova is one word. So it didn't happen in, in Spanish. But the Pinto example you brought up did actually go into a market and cause a problem because I think it was Brazil. Mm -hmm. It went into that market and Pinto there was a slang for a body part that only men have. Oh my so word. That failed so see you 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 are going the right direction that you have to know not just the words but also the slang that would be appropriate and i've got all sorts of examples like that well and, and again we use words in our vernacular that that so so I'll, I'll i'll give you an example here in west virginia we use the word holler h-o-l-l-e-r to describe a place I live up the holler. Oh, really? Yes, we use it to describe it. I live up the holler. But normally people would say holler as I'm going to yell very loudly at someone to get their attention, either from across the room or at a stadium or something like that. So I love what you said about not, you have to put the word in the proper format and context so that it's easily understood by who you're trying to communicate with. I love that. Let's expand on that for just a minute. Why do you think it's hard for some companies and some people to understand that concept? I think right now people are so amazed and blown away by what technology can do that they're thinking technology can just handle language. And until they get a deeper understanding that language is a changing organism. I mean, we add three to 6,000 words a year into a language and then Webster drops off words um, that aren't around anymore. So people don't realize, because they're talking every day, how language is actually changing. 
And unless you've really moved away and understand the nuances of holler versus like, I, you know, I could see hollow. Oh, down mm-hmm. yonder in the hollow. Yep. But you know, that's a, that's a little difference in how exact you have to be to get that message across. Well, and I um, think too, you know, to that point, we have taken products and verbed them. So to search yes. something on the internet, we now Google it. Yes. To have a virtual video call like we are, are doing here. Oh, I'm on a Zoom. Yeah. We used to, you know, before, before 2020, Zoom might be um, something that goes extremely fast. Or the Mazda slogan, Zoom, Zoom. Yeah, Zoom, Zoom. Exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. Homeschooling now has taken on, you know, virtual learning. So so I love that point that you just made is that language is constantly evolving Mm -hmm. because sometimes external environmental forces force that word into the language or into the vernacular Mm-hmm. when it has never existed in the vernacular before, because we would never think, we would never think of taking a product and now making it a verb because Google is a product. Google started out as right. a search engine. We would right. never think of taking, you know, uh, I, I'm going to cup, you know, take my tiki, <laughs> I'm going to cup, you know, and make it, make it a verb. Wendy, when, when you, when you think about that, and what you said is really neat, we add three to 6,000 new words. Our language is constantly cycling in words and cycling out words. How important is it for, for words to be universally understood across language barriers? Well, I, I read a really good article from a um, science writer and he was talking about you can look backwards at language which is kind of interesting because I have a dictionary from the 1930s this tiny little thing and if you look at a dictionary now I mean you practically have to have a a wheelbarrow to carry it. Um, We thought War and Peace was a long read now try to read today try to read a dictionary today. Right. And so what he did is he, he said, let's pretend we're going in the future and we've got a spaceship that is going to land on a star in 20 years. And it takes two years for information to get back and forth. Well, all of a sudden you've got people who are living on a spaceship. Words like trees and grass and running and stuff like that are slowly going to go away. But they're going to have experiences up there that we can't even imagine that they're going to have to come up with words for. And then you've got a small group that is going to develop their own style. Like, uh, you know, you think of your young adult. There's words that they use in that, you know, in that culture of growing up that we don't even understand what they are. Well, he talks about snapping somebody. Okay. And and, and he was like, well, yeah, I'll just go ahead and snap this person. I'm like... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> are you, are they near you to where you're going to take a towel and flick them or something? <laughs> you're going to snap a towel. That's the exact same yeah. thing that I thought. Yeah, you're going to snap it. Or am I going to snap my, you know, I'm thinking of what's, I'm thinking of cats, you know, the, the jets and the sharks where they're all, yeah. where they're snapping their, but, but to your Do point. Do you ever play Snapchat? That's what he's doing. Yeah. He's on Snapchat. Yeah. Oh, but no, not no, no, like no. that. Snapchat. Yeah. Snap no, catch. We, so no, we, no, we've never played snap catch. Okay, so here, I'm going to throw it to you, okay? Okay. Now you catch it, you snap, now you throw it back to me. <laughs> but, but, but what kids are, that was fun. That was, that was cool. But what kids are talking about today is the Snapchat app that yes. they're using. They're, and, they, and so my son will say, well, let me snap this person real quick or let yeah. me, and, and, and again, they're using the language that they're familiar mm-hmm. with. And, and it's up to us old, it's up to old fogies like myself to figure out what they mean. You know, it's like English, please. You know, can you? Can well, you... and then it's in context. 
He's yes. looking at his phone. He says, I'm going to snap him. And then you know what it means. He doesn't have a towel in his hand. Yeah, that's so, right. He doesn't have a towel in his yeah. hand. You know, he's not weaponizing fabrics, you know. Yes. Yes, exactly. And so that's exactly what a, that's what a good translator would do is, is they're reading, you know, they're understanding the languages and they're reading to get the context of it to make sure the meaning is accurate. Just as we do in our language all the time to figure out, oh, what's this person, what snap is this person talking about? Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. I want to pivot here for just a minute. I want to get your, I want to tell your story. You, you have a, such a fascinating story that I want to share with folks because again, it's not every day that we have a translation expert on the Intentional Encourager podcast. So I've got to be, I've got to, 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 to dive a little deeper into your story. And again, start as far back as you want to go from point A to point B, how you got from where, from, from, from where you were to where you are, because I can't imagine that you started out as a, as a translations expert in, in going, okay, when I'm five years old, that's what I want to be when I grow up. So, <laughs> so tell your story and in, in how you, you know, and go as far back as you want to go. Tell your story. Well, uh, let's start when I, we're not going to go chronological, but we'll start with when I was five years old. Um, my dad took a job at the Rockefeller Foundation down in Mexico. And so we moved down there. I was just graduated from kindergarten and I had a, um, the two younger brothers, one was about nine months and one was about three. And so we show up at Mexico. My parents had never been off the East Coast before. So you can only imagine what it's like to land in a, for, a foreign country. And back then they called it a third world country. You know, it's mm -hmm. changed a lot since then. And um, didn't speak the language. There was no internet. International calls were very, very expensive. So you never did that. And I went to a um, private school where half my day was in English and half my day was in Spanish. So real quickly, I had to learn how to function. And the other interesting thing about it was their kindergarten, they were very, very advanced. So that by the time I came in to go into first grade, they, they had me behind and I was on tutors. And by second grade, wow. I was doing long division. So wow. early education there was very, very good. And my mom swears that that helped me for the rest of my life um, because I got such a good basis in education there. So that's where I fell in love with languages. Um, How did you adapt? Do you, when you look back and you think you, you were, you were five, six years old, your parents move and you're in this foreign country. Are you surprised looking back at how quickly you adapted, even with the tutoring and the things like that? I get from your, your story, you had to really learn how to adapt quickly. Are you surprised and how well you, you did adapting as a young child. I'm an off the scale extrovert if you test me on any of the personality profiles. And I am naturally very, very curious. So taking somebody with a just a, a genetic makeup like me and dropping me into the situation, I looked around and I said, okay, who's gonna be my friend? And so I wow. adapted very, very easy. And plus you're young, so you don't know any other way. Mm -hmm. um, so, and plus it was Mexico. I mean, very family oriented um, communities that people are very nice. Um, it was, when we were there, it was a safe place to be. There was a lot of fun things to do. Um, we were living on an American salary in Mexico City. So that, you know, we were we were wealthy. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so I'm not surprised that, you know, when we moved over to um, Taiwan, that was a very different story that uh, that I think was much more difficult to adapt. But you know, I had that makeup that was there. Now my my brothers aren't as extroverted. 
and not as adapting. So I think, you know, they did fine when they were, we, we did fine growing up. There were a lot of challenges, but we came back to the United States for um, middle school and high school because my parents did want us to have that experience. Do you, do you find that, that when you're put in those situations early in life like that, what did you, how do you think that, that helped you develop as a teenager, young adult? Because I would think, and my parents and I moved around a lot, but we moved within the United States. We moved regionally. Mm-hmm. Your parents moved you to, to not one, but two foreign countries. Three, the Philippines three foreign, Yeah, the Philippines. <laughs> so three foreign countries. How do you think that helped you develop? Because you mentioned being an extrovert and it does help. Yeah. You make friends quickly and things like that. But how do you think that helped shape you as you got back to the United States from middle school and high school? Did you feel like you had a huge advantage over classmates or do you feel like you had a disadvantage because you didn't grow up in the, in that area like your, your peers did? I I, want to really understand that time in your life because I can't imagine my parents moving me to three different countries. Yes. So there, the answer to your either or question is yes. There were some real advantages and there were some real disadvantages because now I've raised my kids living that, having them live in the same house all through growing up and just our experiences are so night and day. It's, it's interesting. What I, I think the benefit, best benefit it gave me is I know in my gut the benefits of diversity, equity, and inclusion. I mean, I don't have to study it. I don't have to look at it. I know the benefits of it. And I don't look like a person that would would understand that. And so that will come out sometimes. I have a very dear friend from um, business school. We, we met at Dartmouth at Tuck. And in one of the first cocktail parties, I was standing next to her, engaging her in discussion. And she's... Uh, um, she's got black skin and she is a uh, lesbian. And mm-hmm. um, she told me later on after we had a better friendship, you know, she couldn't understand why I was talking to her. And to me, it didn't even, she was yeah. nice. She was standing next to me. We were both students there. So it yeah. wasn't, I didn't single her out and I didn't ignore her, but for her perception to think, you know, like to wonder why I'd be talking to her. Um, was just very interesting. And I think that's happened again and again. And so that's the huge benefit that I get from it. The other is just the love of languages, cultures, and travel. So I, every year I try to take my kids on an international trip. So they get that same exposure and understand people are the same everywhere. You know, like we talked about at the beginning. And, And we've tried to do that with, with our son, is to give him unique experiences growing up that hopefully will he will understand the uniqueness of the experience because and really appreciate what you get to do and what you don't get to do. And I love what you said about diversity, diversity, equality, and inclusion. Those are basic human things. Um, you know, I have a lot of different friends that are all all kinds of of different ethnicities and, and, you know, male, female, everything else. My wife tells me, she says, you have a very eclectic group of friends. And I said, that's intentional. That's very, that's very intentional because again, how do you, how do you build to, to, to the sign behind you? How do you learn to build rapport with people? If you only surround yourself with one type of person, if you only have one type of person in your life that always agrees with you and things like that. And I'm like, no, I want people that disagree with me so that we can learn from each other. I want people, I, I don't, all of my friends are not conservatives. That's okay. You know, that that's perfectly (laughs) fine. We, we find, and that's what Wendy, that's what I was talking about earlier about common ground is I think we've lost the, and I don't mean to to divert here, but I feel like we've lost the ability to find common ground as people. Yes. Yes. You know, know, yeah. Because 
I, I one thing I know about you, you are a diehard Penn State football fan. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> I'm I don't I'm not a Penn I'm not a Penn State fan. I I oh. I go to Mar I went to Marshall University. We're worlds apart as far as football is concerned. I, I've got to ask you this though, in 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 that. And, and I'm sure, I know you've been to a ton of games in that area. That is a special, that's really a unique part of the country. Yes. When, when you go back to Happy Valley, yes. what is it about that place that just makes you feel at home? Because it's not big city. It, it is literally, they stuck Beaver Stadium in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right? I mean, Penn State, they, you know, College, um, State College is not a thriving metropolis. It's not in the middle of downtown Pittsburgh. It's not in the middle of downtown Philadelphia. It's not anywhere near that. What about yeah. that place evokes those kind of special feelings for you? Oh, well, my mom lives there, my best friend. I, you know, I, that's where I went to middle school and high school. And then I went on to Penn State. So I spent a lot of time there and it's, it's beautiful, particularly in this time of year. It's where I learned to speak redneck. Um, and there's nothing like a Penn State football game. I mean, the stadium seats over 100,000 people and there's tailgates before where people bring out all sorts of fancy foods and grills. And, you know, it's a very social, upbeat, happy time. And people will go there. I've got friends that will, that are still going since we graduated from Penn State. So it's all about, you know, here, here my extroverted self is coming out. It's all about the people that I know and I've connected with from there. And you know, the amazing thing about that is you talk about a situation where you go from a legend in Joe Paterno, a legendary coach in Coach Paterno. Yes. And now you have Coach Franklin, who's an African-American, that's coaching there at Penn State. And look yes. how far Penn State has come. And that's just, that they wanted James Franklin when they yes. hired him. They, they went after him, aggressively pursuing him. I, I, I've got to ask you as a Penn State – and I've had a, a Penn State alum on the podcast, a, a friend of mine, Brian McDonald, who is also mm -hmm. a Penn State alum. And we talked a little bit about the, the, the rough patch that Penn State went through eight or 10 years ago. And again, you can go back and, and research that for yourself. But as an alum, how do you think Penn State has come out of that, that situation with Coach Paterno with his resignation and all the things that happened there? How do you think they've come through that? As an alum, what do you see that, that the changes, the real positive changes that have happened there at Penn State? Well, I think that it was a very unfortunate situation. Totally agree. I, um, I went to school with Joe Paterno's daughters and I knew the family. I'd actually spent the night at their house before. They were How very cool outstanding. <laughs> How yeah. cool is that? Yeah, yeah, no, and they were a good, good, family. I mean, good kids, you know, as, you know, as, honor, as honorable as his reputation was, he was that kind of family. Now, I've heard he was a tough coach on the field, and mm -hmm. that's what, you know, how he, how he won so many games. So to see him go down for something like that is a real shame. And I think it's rocked the whole world. I mean, the whole, from there, We've come out with the Me Too movement. We've heard mm -hmm. voices, um, heard, you know, like finally women and children and men who've been abused, the voices are getting heard yeah. and people are starting to talk about that. So between the Boy Scouts and Penn State, I think we had to go through those horrible situations to, to be able to talk about it. I mean, it's one in four women have been abused and one in mm -hmm. five guys. I mean, that's mm -hmm. a lot. And it that's is. always been pushed under the carpet. And I think that's with, you know, Sandusky doing that, people had inklings about it from what I've heard, um, you know, during and after the time. Nobody had proof mm -hmm. until the, you know, assistant coach walked in and, and reported it. Um, and so 
you know, how, and I think there's that decision if you have an inkling or if you have proof to report it. And before it was just, you had to have proof. Now I think if people have inklings, they might do something more about yeah. it. And yeah. it also takes people opening their eyes to seeing that it really goes on out there. And I give Mike, Mike, the, the assistant coach, I think it was, his name was Mike McQuaid or something. Mike. Yeah. yeah. He, he played quarterback at Penn state. I give him a ton of credit for saying, you know what, this is wrong. This mm -hmm. needs to be addressed. We've got to do something because again, the way, and it's not just Penn state. It is other schools that have a winning tradition and a lot of things, you know, a lot of fall, you know, there you could talk Penn State football in that area 365 days a year. Oh, yeah, people do. And people do. Yeah, exactly. And, and I, I admire him for saying, no, wrong is wrong. Coach always taught us to be honorable men. Coach always told us, Coach Paterno always told us to tell the truth. Coach Paterno preached these beliefs, and, and he bought into them to the point where it was like, you know, hey, I know this is, here's the ramifications, but I'm going to do the right thing. And you're exactly right, Wendy. I, I think it opened up a lot of change in that, in that culture that was very good. That, that yeah, and that's where, like, he took a it. lot of abuse for why didn't he stop it right then, or why didn't he report it, or why didn't he call the police, and, you know, so here he went to Joe Paterno, Joe Paterno went to the campus police and the, you know, the athletic yeah. director, and, you, you know, so weird is it, who, who do you report it to? I yeah. mean, and that's what just, it was just broken, and so yeah. I think all organizations and companies. I mean, if I've lost two jobs that I was high performer at, I mean, even after I left one of them, I was salesperson of the month early on in my career because two bosses hit on me and I turned them down and I lost jobs from that. And I, I mean, I, that was shameful till, till the, I never talked about it till the Me Too movement. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden more friends are talking about it and what women have gone through and let alone the number of children and, and men that are coming out and talking about stuff. So, hey, let's put a society structure on yeah. there so when you see it, you know what to do. It's well, not it's, like so shocking that you can't believe it because it's never been talked about. Well, it's shameful behavior, first of all. I don't care man, woman, whatever. It is shameful mm -hmm. behavior to hit on a coworker. It's shameful behavior to hold a, pro, a, a position over someone's head because of certain that's shameful behavior that's boorish shameful behavior and it should it never happen all the and it time. does you're and you're 100 it's right. it's you know after me too some of that is some of the guys have been held accountable for what they've been done and they done. should and they should have been yeah. they they really yeah. should have been i've got to ask you though when you have that happen to you let's pivot here for just a second when you have that happen to you early in your career how did that how did that affect you how did that shape you? And how did you go about picking yourself back up and going, you know what? I am strong. I'm, I'm better than this. Well, there's a lot of shame because you're thinking I lost a job. And, uh, you know, I just went out and got another job. Wow. You know, high performer and I could do things. And I mean, I was, I was let go on the 15th of January on the first time it happened. And when they had the January report come out, I was salesperson of the month. <laughs> yeah. So when you have a track record like that and you're in sales, I mean, this was really early on out of, out of college. Um, you know, I knew that I could sell. Well, so. and, and the reason I asked that is for some people, it's devastating because they, they go, oh my gosh, I got let go of, from a position and they start to internalize, right? They start to yeah. think it's, it's, it's my fault I must have done something wrong. You know, it's, it's on me. And I love how you flipped that mindset and said, you know what? I, I'm a rock star. I can, I can sell. I can go out and, and do this. 
let's transition real quick to yeah, where that's you are. Many yeah. years, many right. years ago, and you know, just out of need, I needed a job. So you kind of, you gotta go on. Well, and I love that, Wendy, because you developed that mindset of to to what you just said. I have to go on. I am going to put this behind me. Yes, that was a bad experience, but I'm not going to let it define me. And a lot of times we let those negative experiences define us and it kind of puts us mm. in a funk and we go, oh my gosh, I must, it must have been, like I said a minute ago, it must have been me. And so now you, you've had the opportunity, you get the opportunity to, to buy your own company. I got to think that because there are some people out there that have those opportunities and they go, oh my gosh, I don't know if I am up to the challenge. I don't know if I'm up. It's a great opportunity. I'm going to do it, but am I up for the challenge? Take me through when you had the opportunity to purchase the, your company. What were you thinking? How were you kind of processing all that and, and taking all that in? And what, what did you want to fix immediately when you took over? Ah, well, I was laid off on maternity leave. <laughs> hey, what a great reason to buy a company. I was laid off on maternity leave. Yeah. I was laid off on maternity leave, a large global company, and they decided to do away with their corporate marketing department. So I um, had owned my own company before business school. And I thought, you know what, if this can happen, I took a company that I wanted to be with for a long time and then they just did away with their global marketing department. If this can happen to me, I wanna go back to, to having my own company, but I had no idea what to start. And I happened to go to uh, venture capital fair to, uh, you know, to network and try to figure out what was out there. I liked helping companies grow. And I ran into a fellow tech alum who said, you know, why don't you buy a company? And I kind of laughed and I'm like, huh, with what money? And, but the idea planted a seed there. And I came back and I Googled, you know, I searched for buy a company and mm -hmm. there's some platforms on there. And I just started daydreaming and I found this little translation company that was for sale. And I thought, oh, I've always loved languages and cultures. Wow. I lived international. At one point, I said to my dad in high school, oh, I'd like to be an interpreter. And he said, oh, go get to be a special specialist in an industry and learn two languages, and then you'll be able to do it rather than just specializing in the language. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, so then I specialize in business. I happen to love business and um, met with the owner. And a few months later, there I was. I was owner. And first thing I wanted to fix 16 years ago is she didn't have a website and she didn't have an interest in taking it into the technological age. So I put a website in and a CRM and haven't looked back. Love it. Wow. Tell me the biggest challenge that you faced in the last 16 years in business. And what was the greatest lesson that you, that you learned from that challenge? So business challenge. Business or personal? Because again, I think, I think people that listen to this podcast might say, well, yeah, Brian, Wendy, but you know, I run my own business. Yeah, Brian and Wendy, but I do this or that. What is the biggest obstacle there, that you have overcome? You can make it personal or professional. Either one is great. What was the lesson you learned from it? Because I think people, they you know, a lot of people are going through challenges right now. A lot of people are facing personal and professional challenges. And sometimes it's hard to separate the two because like I just mentioned, they're running their own business and it's a part of who they are and they're intertwined. So, right. you know, do you, you, do you have that lesson that really sticks out to you that, of something you overcame? Yeah, sure. I went through a divorce about 10 years ago. So it was six years, you know, five, maybe four or five years into the marriage when um, we realized it just wasn't working out and our kids were young, you know, one in preschool, one in second grade, and I went through a divorce. And, you know, right now with everybody at home through COVID, I've heard that people are either refinding themselves and doing great or they're struggling with relationships that they haven't built up. Now, I would highly recommend that if you have loved 
that person initially, see if you can find out where that love is and if you can yeah. build on it and make it better because ultimately that's the best. Um, yet going through the divorce was the best thing for me because we were two people that shouldn't, shouldn't be together. Our kids would have grown up extremely dysfunctional living in the household with the two of us. And so, um, you know, going through a divorce, having young children, running a business, that was a really rough time of life. Wow. What was, what did you take from it that you may have learned about yourself that you didn't realize? Because I, I can, I know people that have gone through divorces and it's affected them emotionally, physically, they've lost a lot of weight. They, you know, they, they, they don't sleep well. They age through that process. And, and I'm just, and, and I'm just making observations of what I have witnessed from the outside looking in. Was there a particular lesson that you learned from that, that has carried you or sustained you? Yeah. You know, my aunt who got a divorce years ago when her ch children were young, so divorce was less common. She said to me that, you know, if he had died, it would have been easier because when a spouse dies, the community comes out and supports you. When you go through a divorce, you feel so alone. You feel like nobody else has gone through it. Mm -hmm. And people have, I was in a networking meeting and the divorce attorney who was talking, he said, you know, how many people have gone through a divorce? And like half the room put their hand up. And all of a sudden I was like, okay, I'm not alone here. Yeah. So I think if you're going through a divorce, um, just recognizing that you're not alone and taking that time to spend time alone and process the feelings and diary and get a counselor and, and slow down and take care of yourself that knowing that you're going to come through it and you're going to be stronger, you know, and I think that's where the gratitude journal can help. I think that's where the visioning, I think that's the, you know, saying in a year or three years from now, it's going to be better, but focusing on what is going right today. Isn't it amazing? Cause you were just talking about it would have been much easier had your spouse passed away. Isn't it ironic that most people don't ask nearly as many questions when someone passes as they do when a divorce happens? Huh? I didn't think about that. Right. I mean, it, it really yeah. does because, because when, when someone passes away, you know, it's like, okay, well, what happened? And you tell them, well, you know, like, like in my dad's case, like he died in his sleep. Okay. Well, you know, that's, there's right. nothing more that I can add to it. If I would go through a divorce, they'd be like, well, how was your marriage before then? Or what, you know, th there would be all these questions. And it's like, you know what? I, I, you know, that's not the time to play interrogation. When someone's going through that, when someone is, is, is that, when something you've emo invested in that emotionally ends, I can't imagine, I, like, I would not do that. I would not ask somebody, what happened? Well, take me through that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't ask nearly as many questions as I do on a podcast because there are some things that's like, you know, look, that's none of my business. Why that? Well, happened. I think the going through the divorce, what I realized is there marriage is hard. Marriage is very, very hard and you're going to go through tough times. And when you tell somebody that you're going through a divorce, it's surprising how many people have said, Oh, I've thought about it before or, you know, what was going on? Like they're trying to figure out what's going on in their marriage and what's happening. And so they're trying to, to process that way and how you decided to get a divorce. Cause it takes a really strong person to get a divorce. Yep. You know, yep. it's, there's so many people that stay married just because it's easier or they do it for the kids or the wrong reasons. Um, but it's, it does, I heard that, you know, somebody said that it takes a strong person to get a divorce and it, it does. I really um, appreciate you being so candid and so honest and transparent about that. Because again, 
that is that that's a part of everyday life. I don't like it. Nobody, nobody likes it, but it happens. I mean, it happens to, to liberals, conservatives, Christians, non-Christians, professionals, non professionals I mean, it happens to people, athletes, celebrities. It happens to people in all walks of life, no matter what you do or, you know, I've known pastors that have gotten divorces. Yeah. And you would think, yeah. okay, well, they're a pastor. They're supposed to be men and men in, of the cloth. And they're like, no, they're human beings. Right. Yeah, and that's when we got divorced. Uh, my older son was in second grade. And I can remember saying to him before the end of the year, another child in your class will go through a divorce. And a month later, yeah. it came out that somebody was going to, you know, somehow I could do the numbers and figure it out that somebody else would go through and it did. And yeah. so he didn't feel so alone. No, that's, yeah. that's unbelievable. Hey, Wendy, I've got one last question for you and I end every podcast with this. And I, I so appreciate your time. I've enjoyed this. Con this conversation has been really different, but it's been really good. And I've enjoyed it very much. Give the audience your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. As somebody finishes listening to our conversation, What's one piece of intentional encouragement that you want to leave with them? Oh, the gratitude journal. And even if you don't want to write it down, just start your day thinking about what you're thanking, thankful for. You can do it in prayer and, and, you know, express to your God or your, you know, whoever you worship, you know, what you're grateful for, or just say, I'm grateful for, and then try to think of one to three things that are small moments in your life that you're appreciative for. It'll, it, it, it's an intentional way to have a much better day. Very well said. Couldn't, could not finish that any better myself. Wendy, tell folks how they can connect with you, your resources, your company. Okay. So I am very active on LinkedIn. Um, we post something daily about fun little facts or tidbits about language and culture. Some are pretty funny. Uh, so you can look for Wendy P's translation expert and Keys is spelled P as in Peter, E-A-S-E. -E. Uh, happy, happy to connect with you. Uh, you can also find us on our website if you want to know more about translation, um, rapporttranslations.com. And rapport is spelled like the French word, R-A-P-P-O-R-T, translations.com. I'm going to have to send you some, some hillbilly words to translate. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Holler, fixin', yuns, things like well, yuns is too close to yens, as they say in Pittsburgh. Okay. Yeah, okay. They, as they say yeah, up you there. You gotta send me some words. I'll do some LinkedIn posts about them. <laughs> I will definitely do that. Wendy Peace. Find her on LinkedIn, Wendy Peace, P-E-A-S-E, Wendy Peace Translation Expert. Please go go connect with her, get get her resources. You may have a need for her company, and so that would be awesome. And by the way, if, if you end up uh, using her company, just say, hey, I, I heard your, your podcast with Brian on the Intentional Encourager podcast. And that would that that'd be a great way to let Wendy know how you found out about her company. But Wendy, this has been awesome. I so appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. No, thank you. It was great to talk to you. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be an intentional.